What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Sports Medicine Broadcast, a podcast to promote and improve your practice as an athletic trainer. Today, I've got Jennifer Reeling and Bart Peterson. They are Bart is the current chair of the Second Secondary School Athletic Trainer Committee, and Jennifer will be taking over next week at the time of this recording as the chair of the Secondary School Athletic Trainer Committee. And we are discussing the COVID nineteen return to play recommendations for the secondary setting from the NATA. And so, of course, I am your host, Jeremy Jackson, and this conversation is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash COVID-19 return to play. Actually, I'm sorry, it's COVID-19 RTP. So this one is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash COVID-19 RTP. And so I, I've had Bart uh, Peterson on a couple times of the podcast. We've interacted quite a bit on social media. We've actually met in person at some of the NATA conventions. And so I've never had the chance to meet Jennifer, but it's something that we've kind of connected as um, Jennifer has a little bit of story dealing with adoption and we're dealing with foster to adopt. And so we've been trying to meet, but you know, we couldn't meet in Atlanta this year. And, and so eventually we're going to meet up, but Jennifer, can you just take a minute and uh, introduce yourself and then we'll go from there. Sure. I am a 1990 graduate of Millican University in Decatur, Illinois, 91 graduate of Indiana State in Terre Haute, um, where I got to study under Robert Benke and Ken Knight, which um, was quite a, a privilege. And um, I am a, I just finished uh, earlier than I anticipated my 29th year with DC Public Schools. So we'll move into year 30 here um, whenever that picks back up. So um, I became active in uh, volunteering with the NATA back in about 2004 as a member of the Secondary School Athletic Trainers Committee. Um, Then I was a little quiet for a while. And then here in D.C., we had to pick up a licensure fight. And the DC ATA had been inactive. Um, and we also, um, about the same time, started a state association, a state athletic association. So we pushed forward um, an initiative to have a smack associated with that. And all those things kind of uh, pushed me to the forefront and led me to where I am now. So um, I just try to be a voice for athletic trainers in D.C. Uh, P.S. is where it started. Well, in D.C. is where it started. And then it's just grown from there. So again, I'm excited to kind of meet you here. And this will be more of a formal conversation. And sometime we'll get to have that other conversation. But yeah. without much further ado, Bart, um, why don't you start us off with, we're talking about the, the documents. I have those linked here on the Facebook Live. I'll have them linked on the, the post that accompanies this. Again, we're talking real quickly about the telehealth, telemedicine, because it's super important in the COVID-19, because we don't know for sure if we're returning. As we are returning, then we need to know what is the best practice, because everybody has ideas, and everybody's throwing out recommendations. So this is one centralized idea. Bart, why don't you start us off with the document? So he's going to share the screen and show it if you're watching live, but if you're listening live, you can just go to sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash COVID-19RTP. Well, good morning. Thanks for having us on. It's, I, I love your, your podcast and listen when I can, and, and it's, a, uh, it's fun to be on here and, and share the screen with you. Um, a little bit different here with Zoom. I've been, like pretty much everybody else, I've probably been Zoomed out, you might say. Um, those kind of things. So you might notice I got up this morning and did my hair for you. Um, wanted to make sure it is seven o'clock out here on the West coast. Um, so I got up and did my hair for you. And, 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 uh, if the folks want to know why, then, then 
I did that for the NHA Foundation as a fundraiser for the foundation. So um, support the foundation um, and athletic training research and education as well. So, you know, a lot of what we're doing today um, goes along with that research and education. So it's a it's a big deal. So here's here's uh, I'm sharing here our document. I have to tell you, I got to give full shout out to Amanda Muscatel at the NHA office who took our um, high school writing and uh, made it look pretty. So um, she does a, a bang up job for us and it really does um, make us look a lot better than, than what we do here. So I uh, want to start off with the, uh, with the focus of this document. This document is designed to help the high school athletic trainer, secondary school athletic trainer um, know what questions to ask of their employers so that we can and they can provide appropriate care for their athletes, no matter how it, it turns out. So it's not designed to, to tell them what to do, but it's designed to give them the questions to ask, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about this? Um, for instance, um, let, let's talk really quickly about EAPs and uh, emergency action plan. And yeah, I know that your emergency action plan there down there in Houston is uh, a little bit uh, different than mine out here. Um, you guys have hurricanes and that kind of stuff. So let's say you have um, a storm come through and maybe it drops a tornado and what's your emergency action plan for that tornado? Um, well, you're gonna evacuate to safe space, right? Um, but let's say you have some social distancing requirements or maybe, maybe you're phase one or phase two, you should have in your emergency action plan where you're going to be evacuating these different groups to, to make sure that they're safe, but you com still comply with those uh, emergency action plan uh, type things where you only can have 10 in a group or 50 in a group or those kind of things. So it, it just kind of gives the athletic trainer the ability to ask the right questions. So um, we have three main concerns, administrative concerns, physical activity concerns, and risk, mit risk mitigation strategies. Way too early in the morning to be saying that big word. You know, we can go through each one of those. I, I don't know if you wanted to go through each one of those or, or uh, if you just want to talk general strategies, but... Um, no, I think so the practical application is going to be better because even just now, what you just said, I didn't think about when there's lightning. We have lightning like all the time. They normally, all of them go into the weight room. The weight room, there's no possible way that the whole football team could, and, you know, if soccer's working out and cross country's working out, then they just run to the weight room. There's no possible way that they can keep that social distancing. Or they'll crowd in the hallway, which is right in front of our office, and there's no way they can keep six feet if they're all crowding in there. So it is something I hadn't even thought about reading through this because, you know, we're just thinking the normal okay, EAP, all right, you know, we know what to do if there's a heat emergency, we know what to do if there's a cardiac emergency, but now how are we going to keep those distances? So, yeah, let's kind of just walk through the principles and some practical applications, and I know there are some questions that our group had um, about the return to play and all this other stuff, and so I'll see, and I'll work those in too. Okay, okay, well, the first thing I think is important to, to look at is the, the NFHS came out with their document on return to play, uh, return to sport, and it, it talks about the phases that were addressed by the White House document uh, on return to play and return to sport. In phase one, you know, obviously you don't have any, anybody more than 10 people uh, if you have that at all. Here in Arizona, which under my local jurisdiction, phase one, we're not allowed to do anything. 
So we're still not doing anything yet because um, we're in phase one. And the local government entities, jurisdictions have decided that July 1 will be the first day we can go back and start into phase two uh, and, and working out and doing some conditioning activities. So everything is governed by your local jurisdiction um, and then up to the state and then to the federal level. And even in Arizona here, and you're going to see this probably in Texas a little bit, Jennifer in D.C. is probably all one or, or it's all or nothing because it's small enough and it's all a big city type environment. But in Arizona, we have the reservations, um, the Navajo Reservation, which is a really hot spot for COVID right now. And they're really struggling to, to provide care and those kind of things. That part of the state probably will not be released to move forward with activity nearly as quickly as as maybe some of the other parts of the state that are more more uh, less covid centric i mean there's there's fewer cases of covid out there so each area is going to be a little bit different and that that's the first thing you have to understand and realize is that we as athletic trainers and the athletic director probably not even the principal has control over what phase you're put into is probably going to be your local department of health or, or the government, the state department of health and, and the governor. That being said, the, there's phases that go through and, and kind of help you determine what, what response you're going to provide. Phase one is no more than 10 people working out. And then, and, and then you divide that uh, 10 people into probably three groups of three, uh, with one of them being a four, a group of four. And those people all stay together and they work out together. Um, so we know who it is that they've been hanging out with, um, who they've been working out with and who they're exposed to in case they come down with something. We can do some social tracing really quickly. When we go to phase two, when we can expand up to 50 people outside, then that really creates a, a bigger issue with that potting or grouping when we get into the working out and working together. Um, so that they're probably still going to have groups of five or maybe six and maybe have eight or nine of them. And that those groups also include the number of coaches or, or medical people that are there. So if you have a group of 10 with a coach and an athletic trainer, that means you can only have eight students working out together. So that really creates a lot of organization that needs to go on in the backside and, and to make sure that everything is, is uh, organized and done well. So um, I'm, I'm not an expert there, but I, I from what, like in the meetings that I've been in, they talked about a group of 10. So like our football team will be outside pretty much all day, um, not all day, but during their workout, they're going to be outside and they're going to have that, that group of 10 kids with one coach and they're going to stay together the whole time throughout the whole summer workouts. So does the, I didn't, I didn't know that the coach counted as part of that 10 that, that's the recommendation in National Federation and most of the state high school activity associations are, are doing the same thing. Otherwise, you end up with, and we, we have this problem here um, as well. A lot of high school programs have like 15 or 20 coaches, right? So if all 15 or 20 coaches are there working with 10 kids, you, you have a group of 50 or 30, um, 25, and you've broken that that executive order where no more than 10 people can be in a group together. Right. So that, that group of 10 is a, is a mandate from the government. And so you have to, that coach fits into that group of people. Did, did I answer your question there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is just things where like, I, I hear them, I hear the recommendations and I process, okay, 
groups of 10, 10 kids, got it. But it's like, no, groups of 10 people, including including the coach. So it's, it's just those those little things we have to kind of just talk through, think through. And as, as again, you just keep going. And as I have those questions, I'll just interrupt. So, so let's continue on there because we have a, 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 you know, let's get out there into phase two where we're a group of 50. And, and I'm not sure how you're going to space. This is a question you're going to have to go to your administration. So is a group of 50, does that mean 50 kids on the practice field or on the game field? Um, and then 50 other kids on the softball field or on the baseball field? Uh, uh, or is that 50 altogether outside at once? I, I'm not sure. I think that's a, a question you need to ask your administration, how you're going to break that up. Um, I think it's important to have those clarifications from your administration. But that includes, like, let's say you're at practice and you're in July and you're at practice or, or August and you're at practice and you have 10 coaches out there. So that means you have 40 athletes, but then you have three or four student managers and maybe a group of three or four student athletic trainers, athletic training student aides, and then now you're down to 25 because of that rule that states only a group of 50. So we're really, you know, we, we need to think in advance what we're going to do and how we're going to do it and how we're going to provide for all of the things because you start adding in personnel and it really does start to create uh, a problem for going status quo the way we have been in the past. The key takeaways from our our, uh, um, our document, you need to have, just like you have an athletic healthcare team, um, you need to have a COVID response team to assess, develop, and implement necessary administrative measures, uh, protect the health and safety of student athletes and staff. So this is not a COVID response team to respond when somebody is diagnosed with COVID, that decision should already be made. How you're gonna to respond to that should already be made by this team. So uh, you guys have been working together there um, and, and you've been working in a group and like you talked about, you talk, thought about these things and talked about those things and how we're gonna do it. Um, that's your COVID response team, right? You have your, maybe your health services pre- folks there at the school, one of your administrators, your athletic director, if that's not the same person, and then your athletic trainer or athletic trainers, and they work together. Maybe you have your team physician in that group as well. I would recommend that if, if possible to help make those decisions so that you can know what happens when Johnny walks in and says, I don't feel good. And then you point the gun at his head and he has a temperature of 106. Temperature you know, gun, thing. temperature gun, just to be sure. Yeah, temperature. Is that what? <laughs> well, no, no. You yeah. said point the oh, gun at his head. Point the, yeah, temperature gun. Sorry about that. Yeah. I'm. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Thank you. I'm going to have to be careful about that. Point that temperature gun at his head. 106. You know, he answers three or four questions that are positive for, on the COVID screening, and all of a sudden you have a room full of kids and you have a positive COVID. What What are you going to do? How are you going to respond to that? That COVID response team should have answered that question before you actually get to the point where you have kids on campus and in school. So that's an important one. The athletic director and coaches need to anticipate and work together, work with the athletic trainer collaboratively to address the challenges related to return to physical activity. And that's that's where that um, KSI document um, and their return to play and their conditioning and strength and conditioning and getting back in shape document comes into play. Y'all need to work together. And that's really important because you're treating them. Coaches are trying to get them back to, to some semblance of normal, 
They've been sitting there at home on the Xbox for the last three or four months because that's all they were allowed to do. COVID has some really strange effects on the human body that we don't understand yet, but we do know that there's a certain percentage of those kids who were COVID positive. They didn't know it. They show up and it could be that their cardiovascular or their respiratory system, their renal system, or even the neurologic system has been affected negatively. If we can work the kids back in slowly, then we can hopefully catch those kids before something really, really bad happens. We need to establish um, risk mitigation. And athletic trainers are key in this part. And I don't know how many athletic trainers have actually been part of your district or your school um, response plans. Uh, I know in my school district, our athletic trainers are nine schools and nine of us. We've been sharing emails back and forth. They haven't let us meet together, and we've been Zooming back and forth. And the district's putting together a plan. We have no idea what it says and how it says it, but we've been copying the athletic director on the district athletic director on all of our emails. So I, I've been hearing back from people who have been in those meetings that we've been represented, but have we really been represented? And the athletic trainers are a key component we're hired, we're, we're there to provide the care. Are the districts really, really utilizing us to the best of, our, of their abilities to provide for that care for the kids? So athletic trainers um, should be positioning themselves with the folks who are in those decision-making processes to um, help them educate them and help educate and help folks know what it is we can do and how we can do it. I'll tell you what, that last point down there is really important because how many of our um, coaches are over 55. So we're not only there to take care of the kids, but we're also there to take care of the staff and everybody else and coaches and, and referees and everybody are over 55. And we're going to be dealing with those folks as well. And, and a lot of the recommendations are saying if you're over 55, you're over 60, you know, you shouldn't even be at practice at work because you're in a high risk zone for, for getting COVID. So want to talk a little bit about communicable disease policy. Hopefully, folks have a communicable disease policy on, on file and that they're using and utilizing. If you don't, it's time to get one. Um, and it shouldn't be just uh, skin disorders. It shouldn't be just vector-borne or the, like the COVID type stuff. It should be all-encompassing of everything. You should be working with your school nurses and clinics, and, and there should be a communication avenue that is... Uh, created so that so-and-so doesn't go into the, the health office and the nurse screens them and finds them positive and then they show up at practice and you don't know about it, right? Or they, they have the flu, they're throwing up during the school day, but they still come to practice. That, that should be part of um, everyday activity so that this isn't a big thing. What are you going to do for somebody who tests positive for whatever communicable disease? What is the process? I, I think we're probably in a, in a situation right now where we're probably overreacting. The pendulum is swinging way far to one side. And at some point, we'll figure out we went a little too far here and there. But in the meantime, we need to be able to uh, react appropriately so we don't you know, hurt the person who is either positive or that has been exposed to them. Develop a communication strategies and communication plan for when uh, information updates. Who's going to be the one talking to the press? Um, the one thing really scares me is you get that one positive case at your school on your football team, kind of like Oklahoma State had, and there's uh, Ole Miss had a positive case yesterday reported, and all of a sudden it hits the fan and, and the press is all over it. And your school, you know, how does your school look? How does your school react? 
that's important to know what what and who's going to be talking to the press and the public uh, parents and, and the communication that you're going to be providing for the parents. So the CDC has kind of been driving this up and that's appropriately, right? We've been We've been going through and following the CDC recommendations and OSHA recommendations, but folks need to know that these these uh, recommendations have been out there for a long, long time. You know, and like the BOC facility principles document, um, that's been talking about appropriate hand washing forever. So it's important that we're, we're practicing as healthcare providers, and and we should be doing this on a daily basis, and should have been doing this on a daily basis for a long time. So. Let's talk really quickly about pre-participation in physical examinations. The big thing with physicals is because of the uh, tax uh, on the uh, our public health officials and, and physicians and everything else, we don't anticipate that every child that needs a new physical is going to be able to access a physician in a timely manner to get that physical. Of course, they're gonna mow the lawn outside my uh, door, they're outside my window. So um, the National Federation of High Schools um, Sports Medicine Advisory Committee made a recommendation that physical exams be extended uh, for a year to allow the medical system to catch up. So of course that's going to, in some cases, you're gonna have to go through uh, uh, your local Board of Health or you know state officials, uh, see what the state law is and you may have to get special uh, uh, special allowances to be able to do that. Um, here in DC, that was an easy fix for us. Um, any child that's new to your system still has to present with a physical exam, and any child that has pre existing conditions still has to present with a new updated physical exam. So, um, in DC, for us, that's going to be we have um, quite a few asthmatics, and so sending all of them, they're all going to have to go get new physicals. Um, so, but we don't want to, anybody that's got any pre-existing condition, any autoimmune, any respiratory problems, any cardiac conditions, because we don't know yet the full extent of what the lingering effects of COVID-19 are going to be, uh, we want to make sure that they're as healthy as possible when they start, um, so that we can identify any problems that crop up. So, as far as the PPEs. That's a big thing. Here in D.C., public schools, we have not required the AAP history form to be accompanied with that. We are going to, that's going to be a requirement. If you um, are unable to provide a new physical at this time, then we are requiring the history form so we can catch kids, even just if they fell, fell over the summer, broke their arm. Um, any new diagnoses that we need to be aware of, um, any anything, that will give us kind of a better snapshot than if we had nothing. So we're going to go with that. I, I was going to say, um, this is all based on local jurisdiction. So uh, I know um, some states have, have said, no, we're going to require them just like we have in the past. And some states have said, okay, we'll adopt this for this year. Um, it's all dependent on what it was the UIL do. Do you know? The UIL recommended that physicals be extended. I think the UIL recommended that we, that um, y'all, you're all allowed to postpone a physical if there's been no change in the health of the of the athlete. Uh, exposure to a COVID patient, no injury in the past, and no change in diagnosis. Um, and every state is going to be different um, that way. So um, I know that um, it's 
the purpose was to allow for areas where you couldn't get exposure or they didn't want to over, um, you couldn't get a physical because uh, the healthcare people are um, busy with treating COVID, like maybe in New York, some of the areas in New York or, or LA, Cal you know, in California. But there are some areas of the country where it hasn't really changed anything at all. And those folks should just stay as normal, I believe. So going to move on here. We talked about those thermometer guns. How many thermometer guns you got there, Jeremy? We don't have any at the moment. The district ordered some for us. And here in, in our my employment setting, we decided we were going to probably going to need some thermometer guns. So we contacted our vendor and I said, we, we said, we, we want these. And they said, when do you want them? We want them by July when we come back. And they said, well, you need to order them now to get them by July. And you need to order any of the PPE you need by July, you need to order now because you won't have them by that time. And they also said, you're going to pay a premium price for them. So the, the prices right now are just through the roof. And then as the supply and demand chain catches up. So there's some serious issues with uh, the supply chain uh, and it's pretty tough. So if you haven't yet purchased uh, PPE, you need to get on it because you may not actually get it till August or September if you order it now. Yeah, so I mean, that's that's another concern because a lot of people have budgets that we have to spend by like March so that we get everything in and received by the April and everything get paid by the end of May. And so we had already spent ours like in February and then this happens. And so it's like, well, we don't have any more money to spend. So now where is it going to come from? Right. Well, like Bart said, it's a real world concern. We generally order through Henry Schein. And when we first contacted them, they weren't, they wouldn't even let us put those items on our bid list because they did not have any projection for when they'd get them back in stock. So we couldn't even get them on a bid list, let alone actually place the order for them. So um, yeah, there's going to be some scrambling for supplies uh, as we pick back up. So one way that um, some vendors are, are dealing with this is they're allowing you to, like, let's say, let's look at, at the mass right now. The, the mass there on the screen, it says that some schools may be asked to, to provide additional mass for athletes because it's possible that the state is going to require that you use a mass during participation. Right. So you're going to use a mastering participation. If you can imagine playing football in their, uh, your school with a mask on, imagine that. And then, and then, you know, it's only going to be a one day, maybe even a one hour lasting on the mask and it's going to be shredded or soaked through all the way through whatever else. If you think about the numbers, you're looking at maybe half a million masks for a school, for an athletic department. So what the vendors are doing is saying, Look, we'll we'll allow you to to guarantee you're going to buy X number of masks from us, but you only want them in short shipments. So that means we're going to guarantee you will deliver so many masks, but we're only going to give you a portion of them the first month and another portion the second month. That helps the vendor with their supply chain and and it helps them keep the cost down because you might pay premium price in July and August for your for your mass and then maybe by october the price is half of what it was and they're still able to get just a, enough to keep you going so you need to folks need to be working with their vendors to get their ppe uh, and be creative with it but but start now don't don't wait till later and you probably need to be talking to to folks about custodial and cleaning supplies as well because that that kind of stuff is really hard to get a hold of as well 
fact, we got an email the other day from our from our vendor who said, "Hey, we found a new cleaning cleaning agent. It's plentiful and plentiful supply, and it kills. You know, it's a quad four, and so it kills everything, including MRSA and um, COVID. But nobody's really found it, so there's it's in plentiful supply yet. So um, there's a lot of lot of uh, working and wrangling on the part of the vendors to find supplies for people. So I'm not going to really address physical activity because the um, the KSI document does that so well. So I would say that you go through your policy and procedures, how your coaches are going to respond, how your coaches are going to do stuff. And, and I'll tell you, any coach who thinks that they're going to go out there and take the kid who has been sitting on their couch on the Xbox for the last three or four months and have them be at the same place physically as they were when they left in March uh, is either crazy or stupid or both. They, we need to, to assess the kids in advance. We need to, to figure out where they're at. And then um, using that, um, there's a, a pretty good ratio, the 50, 30, 20, 10 ratio that the um, KSI people have put out there. Every athlete should be placed into one of those groups and kind of brought along based on their, their current physical status as opposed to what they used to be. So we can talk about that a little bit later if we have enough time. But I do want to show um, kind of up here at the top, um, we have some references up here for each one of these things. The number of references at the end of the document, but um, if this says section five, that means in section five of PASS or the MCS, um, this is where it's addressed. So anything you're doing here could be helping you with your AMCS um, compliance in the past, filling out PASS and doing that kind of stuff. So we've tried to reference those kind of things in in this document as well. So John Seco is watching live and obviously everybody listening knows John Seco. Uh, he's, yeah. He mentioned that exactly just before you said, he said, do your PASS document because it covers this well. So in section two, I think is what he said. But Yep. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of uh, that kind of stuff. Um, section two is right up here, really, with the cleaning of equipment, the cleaning of uh, the facilities, those kind of things. Um, so that's what he's referencing there, and it's also in section twelve. So we're gonna we'll move past there. Um, hope uh, I hope we're getting. Um, questions and that kind of stuff. If folks want to ask questions, then they can do that as well. So the heat acclimatization is a big deal as well, because again, you know, kids have been sitting on their couch and we need to be taking them out. So um, it's kind of a contradiction and I, I want to maybe address this and Jennifer, maybe you can talk about this if they talked about it on the KSI uh, document. Um, phase one and phase two, you can have more kids if you're outside. So we're going to push them outside so we have group, kids grouped into bigger groups. But the KSI document talks about moving them outside slowly to accommodate for acclimatization um, and having smaller groups inside and moving them outside based on their physical adaptation. So can you talk about that a little bit, Jennifer? The whole point is patience and that you just have to realize that this is not normal circumstances. And, um, you know, we're just going to have to operate differently and uh, getting your coaches to understand that. And so if that means, you know, in the summer months that you start inside and move them out and those sorts of things, then it's just going to have to be a slower process. So it, we just cannot operate as we always have. So along, 
So along those lines, um, Joseph Hernandez was talking about asking about water. So, and I know John Seagull commented there, but as, as far as I know right here in Texas, the UIL, um, and I think the NFHS said that no water was available. So I know in our district that they said that the kids can't even get water from the water fountains currently. Like if they don't bring their own water, they can't work out. So like there's no refill stations, no nothing currently. And so I know that that is our current situation. Um, and you you were kind of talking about conditioning there. So that's important. And we talk about the emergency heat illness and um, all that other stuff. So I don't know if you can mention there what you've seen. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be a little bit, uh, we're going to have to have some ingenuity how we do this. Um, so the NFHS recommends that uh, there are no water machines, uh, the free oil machine, um, until phase three. Um, your state department of health or the county department of health, whoever your regulatory body might have the same ideas. Um, or maybe it gets opened all the way up and there's no restrictions whatsoever. Um, the, the big idea here is number one, they should be bringing their own, um, hydration container, but at some point, some kids are just going to go through all the water. They could bring five gallons and they could go through all, all five gallons. I hope we're not doing that and we're not getting into hypernatremia or anything like that, but whatever we're doing. Um, so I've been trying to think about this too. I mean, it's going to be 108 here today at my place. Um, and we go back into July and we're going to be conditioning and doing stuff. And then we have days when it gets up that hot. And I've been in August when it's been up to 115 and I'm out there with the Kestrel trying to figure out, but Kestrel won't read because there's no humidity, that kind of stuff. You know, the, the, it just sucks the water out of the kid, right? So I was, I've been trying to think out of the box. And I think the only way maybe that I can make it work, and that would be I would have to get approval, would be to have one person stationed at the hydration machine, right, at the water machine, the water boy or the, the Frio or whatever it is. They're wearing gloves, and they're the only ones that are allowed to touch the nozzles. The athlete brings their, their personal container over, and that one person with a mask and a glove fills it, fills the stations without touching any object to object. Um, and it, we probably have the plastic covering on it like you might see um, in your cafeteria, those kind of things. Uh, that would be something that would have to be approved probably by your um, school department of health or um, the, 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 um, the department of health for the county or the city or whoever it is that comes in and inspects um, to make sure that you're actually doing um, appropriate things. My my biggest problem is, or not biggest problem, but I'm I'm looking, I'm watching, I go to restaurants, and and some restaurants you have to get a new um, cup to get a refill at the at the uh, soda station, and some restaurants you don't have to get a new cup at the soda station. Um, so, and, and we're all under the same guidelines. So I think it's kind of up to what you can do, but you need to be providing for um for the health and safety of your kid the next question is is how are you sanitizing those on a daily basis because it would have to be sanitized on a daily basis for that all right so kind of going back to some of the comments um let me see so so they said that the uil is different that they're not including the coaches in the 10 
And okay. so here, here in Texas, it's a little bit a slightly different. And so again, that's, that's what they're recommending. And so, um, whatever, go with what your local policy is. Cause they kind of, the national one is kind of set broad. And then the local one will almost always be a little bit more strict and definitely more applicable. Cause you have to follow the, both, um, to kind of keep your job and keep safety. And then Millie right. Faber said the automatic water bottle stations are okay. And I asked her if she was talking about like the airport ones. So I would assume that's where you just kind of put your water bottle under there without touching anything. And then there's like the motion sensor. Um, and, and then Joseph Fernandez came back in and said that any athlete not previously cleared to participate in sports or answers yes to one of the first questions, they need further documentation. Again, going back to the physicals, the PPE, and they, that's pertaining to the UIL here in Texas because Joseph is in the, uh, in the state. So, okay. Yeah. All those comments are, are awesome. Um, and I, I'm really excited to hear about that. Uh, the, the fill stations for the water bottles on the hallways. We've got one of those and we're trying to get two more in our school because I really do anticipate the, the drinking fountains might be shut down. Uh, and that's really going to cause problems for everybody in the school, not just, uh, our athletes, but our athletes are going to be even more so because they're out trying to, they're being dehydrated additionally to the normal student body and the, and the staff population. Um, so let's see. Um, let's go on to risk mitigation. Obviously, facilities is a big one. Um, you know, and I'm going to go to facilities, and I'm going to use Arizona as an example. Our, our phase one document in Arizona says that athletic health care provided by the athletic trainer can be one patient at a time in the facility during phase one. So I've only got one kid in the room with me um, during phase one, uh, which pretty much locks the door and shuts the door down, right? Because uh, we all know what it's like at a high school. Um, you might have one athletic trainer and 30 kids or 40 kids at a time, um, you know, and, and you, if you have two or three athletic trainers, that's even better, but you still have that same need. Um, Arizona also said that if, if you could provide a brace, um, braces would be preferred over taping because taping puts the, uh, the practitioner or the athletic trainer. And so it's close proximity to the, um, the patient. And then there would be no hands-on treatment uh, in phase one. And then it kind of opens up a little bit more in phase two. Um, and then phase three is, is all the way back um, in the normal-ish um, type things. Um, so that, that's a real issue there that, I, that I'm seeing um, with what compared to how we have been in the past. Um, and that's probably why our, my school district has said, sorry, you can't go in and you can't see kids um, is because they really are saying, um, you know, that we, we just can't provide the care that we have in the past um, safely. So we've got to go down there. So um, the big thing is cleaning and sanitizing. If, if you do have kids in there, if a kid's been on a table, you know, there's obviously they're not going to have kids sharing tables. Lots of times I'll have two or three kids after practice sitting on the same table, uh, you know, icing or being treated and waiting for somebody to get a wound treated or something like that so they can walk home or drive home together. Obviously, you're not going to have that. And then after they get off that table, you know, that table's got to be clean before the next student gets on, those kind of things. See, all um, those athletic trainers that used to complain about the small, tiny athletic training room? See, now it's perfect, right? Cause it's bonus. You can only put one in there anyways. You're like, all right, that's all they fit. That but custodial then, closet's paying off. Yeah, see? But then also you have to consider 
now you got 10 kids that are waiting. So now are they going to line up outside? Are you going to have to put those social distancing markers on the tile so that they can wait outside in the athletic training, you know, outside the athletic training to be treated? And, and then one of the it, questions that, that they talked about in our little, our local, our district athletic training meeting was taping. So ankle taping before practice, I mean, that may have to go because so much is going to go into get that one kid in, have to clean the table, have to clean, clean my hands, wear gloves, whatever, tape them two minutes. And then I'm going to spend another five minutes. And if we have to tape 30 kids or whatever it is, it may be, it may be time that we make that shift and say, coaches, taping is not that crucial. Get the kid a brace. Let's not waste all of our time and all of our supplies on taping. And so that may be an, another conversation that is important to have here as you're talking about cleaning and efficiency and one kid in the athletic training room at a time. So, well, and, and add into that, they got to be screened before they come into your room in the first place, right? If you're screening for practice, then they got to be screened before they come in the athletic training facility um, before you can treat them as well. So you've added another step, maybe two or three minutes added on the front end of that before you treat them. Um, and then your response to a positive question or a positive um, temperature would um, definitely shift the ability to treat those other nine kids in line outside the door. So yeah, those are, these are all questions you're gonna to have to have addressed ahead of time. Um, illness reporting, um, we go, you're gonna be going back to your state department of health, your local department of health and what they're gonna to want to have this happen, but um, you're a healthcare provider and you have to report any positive um, type stuff up the chain to make sure that those kids, and then they can do some contact tra tracing as well. Um, and then promoting health, wellness and hygiene, um, washing hands, uh, avoiding touching your face. Can you imagine being out of practice and you can't wipe the sweat off your face? Um, you know, you're cross country runner and you, know, you get sweat dripping down in your eyeballs and you can't wipe your eyeballs, that kind of stuff. Um, I know Jeremy, you run, can you imagine running with a mask and not being able to touch your mask and move it out off of your eyes, that kind of stuff. Um, so all of these things are really important, but in reality, other than the social distancing, we should have been doing most of this stuff in the first place. You know, the social distancing kind of put a little thing in there and the contact tracing kind of little put a little new little twist on there. But most of this stuff, is just good healthcare that you see at your doctor's office, you see at your physical therapy office, you see um, uh, at, at a hospital, whatever else. And um, maybe we've been a little lax in the past, but we need to up our game a little bit. Um, finally, the emergency action plan. Jennifer, I'm going to let you take this one a little bit again. My mouth's getting dry again. <laughs> so uh, review your emergency action plan. Uh, make sure that it's up to date. It's especially critical now um, that everybody who would have to enact the emergency action plan is up to date, it's been practiced, they know where everything is. Again, like we've said, there is some increased cardiac concerns, um, some increased respiratory concerns. Um, so now everybody needs to break out their A game and make sure they know their emergency action plan, where everything is, that's gonna move smooth. Um, there is a bit of an increased risk that you may have to activate it, um, especially since we're dealing with deconditioned kids, um, largely deconditioned athletes. So um, again, now's the time to make sure that all your T's are crossed and all your eyes are, uh, eyes are dotted. So um, the emergency action plan itself, um, 
may or may not, um, and I wouldn't necessarily include your COVID-19 response plan here, but it could be a part of what you review with your coaches. Um, so if they come across a student athlete that's got signs or symptoms before you do, or, you know, whatever, that they know what that response is going to be and what they need to do, um, that you're not the only one that's aware and screening kids and um, activating any kind of response. Awesome. Thank you. Part of, and, and I want to talk a little, another little bit. Um, let's say your school is screening your athletes before participation. What does your, and you're playing a game today and, and maybe, maybe Jennifer is bringing her Woodson team out here to play Palo Verde's team and Woodson doesn't screen their kids before they come in, but Palo Verde does screen our kids. Um, you need to have worked out in advance what your plan is going to be, because if you're screening my kids, we should probably be screening her kids before they, they get with our kids um, and vice versa. So you might need to, to work out a game day screening plan, how you're going to screen your, your visiting team as they come in and document that. Or are you going to let them screen before they get on the bus? Because that could be a, a possibility too. You're going to put kids on a bus and there's some social distancing issues with busing that are addressed by a number of recommendations as well. All right, so I'm going to kind of flip over unless there's any other questions, Jeremy. Again, it would just be to, to reiterate, make sure you're following local policy because Joseph or Nick, one of them was saying that the UIL is, it's 15, groups of 15 if you're outside, 10 if you're inside. And I know in our meeting that they were saying that you can't exceed the capacity of the facility. So if like if your gym is capacity of 2,000, then, then it has to be like one quarter or one tenth of the capacity or something like that um i don't remember those specific numbers but make sure that you know your specific local things as well and then um, millie was saying yes the automatic water water bottle dispensers like you see in the airports or whatever we just hold it under but then one of the recommendations would be to go old school with a pvc pipe um where you can just drill holes you know every seven feet and then that way they're you know, safer than the six feet or whatever it is. If you drill a hole. Yeah. And then you just let the kid turn, you know, mount it on the fence, turn it down. So the kids can just hold their water bottle up and fill it once you turn it on or whatever it is. Um, and then you have one coach manning that. And so some other good recommendations there. Those are some great recommendations. Um, and, and again, hopefully they would, um, you should make sure that you get those cleared by your admin and, and your um, local department of health to make sure you're providing that. Um, we would hate to, for practice to get shut down after all this because the Department of Health comes out and says that's not compliant and those kind of things. So um want to shift really gears. I don't know what your timeline is here, but uh, telemedicine is a big thing. And, and most states, it got, um, with the executive orders, telemedicine got approved, even if it wasn't legal before. Um, so, so there's some athletic trainers have been providing telemedical care, which is awesome. Um, I know that's how most of the pros and a lot of the colleges have been doing stuff with their athletes. There are some concerns here that we're going to get a kid in, uh, getting an athletic trainer, not a kid, going to get an athletic trainer in trouble because we're not doing it right. You know, HIPAA and FERPA are still there and those kind of things. Um, so we want to make sure that the athletic trainers are protected. We put this telemedical de- document out there and it's really quick. The NHA put out a, um, well, this is the NHA one. So it's really complete. It does a good job, um, but it misses about five points 
on the um, for the secondary school athletic trainer. And I'm going to scroll down here really quick. So number one, check your state practice act to make sure it's legal for you. Number two, um, check your um, PHI, your FERPA and HIPAA compliance. Make sure you have written policies and procedures for it because it is a uh, uh, regulated uh, type of care. You have to have telemedicine specific consent and many states require that that occurs every time you provide the care. So I'm gonna do telemedicine with Jeremy because uh, Jeremy lives in Arizona and I can do it with Jeremy if he's in Arizona. If he's not in Arizona, I can't do it unless I'm licensed in Texas as well. So that becomes an issue if he's crossing state lines. But every time I contact Jeremy, um, then I have to have his specific written consent to provide that care. Um, and that's a, a big deal. Document as you would at normal. Review your malpractice insurance and make sure they're going to cover you. Address your standing orders. Make sure that you have standing orders. And those standing orders need to uh, account for what would you do, what's your emergency action plan in case you discover something that needs to be cared for emergently, right? There's a lot of different platforms out there um, to do provide your telemedicine, but make sure that they are compliant. Zoom was a product of choice at first, and then we were finding out that there was some uh, privacy issues. So Zoom has tightened up their privacy. Make sure you're, that it's a compliant platform. Consider your technology needs. I, I tried to do this with one of my students, um, and she was trying to use her uh, cell phone and her cell phone didn't have enough um, bars where she was to actually do it. So we were kept getting cut off. So then we had to move. She had to go. She was at mom's house. She had to go back to dad's house so she could get on Wi-Fi. And the Wi-Fi was bad because the brother was still doing his schoolwork and taking up a lot of bandwidth with schoolwork, watching YouTube or something like that. So there was real issues. So you need to make sure you have technology on both sides educate and communicate. The big thing is, is everybody needs to know what's going on and those kind of things. So that's what we're talking about for the NHA list. All right. So, so on that, whenever I'm using Remind to message my student athlete about surgery or rehab, or they have questions, are you saying I need to have permission like every time that they message me or you're talking about when you're doing the video? When call? you're doing your video call. Okay. Right. So remind is not remind. They've already consented to the remind. Right. But if you're, if you have them on a screen um, and you're providing care, you're providing a diagnosis or you're providing a recommendation for a change in treatment that those kind of things are definitely um, regulated and you need to make sure that you are, that you are I'm trying to get here where we need to go. One more. There we go. There we go. Yeah. I, I got this little zoom bar at the top. I can't see it. So um, the the consent thing comes in when you are when you're really practicing telemedicine, you're either diagnosing or providing recommendation for a change in care. That's telemedicine. There's also telehealth, which is just checking in. There's virtual visits, and every every state has a different tier tiered approach to telemedicine. And it's really important that the athletic trainer knows those tiers. Uh, and, and they stay compliant with what they can do. And then we also need to acknowledge that here, as soon as the executive order goes away, many, many states, um, like per se Arizona, uh, I will no longer be able to provide telemedical care as soon as the executive order goes away. 
when that expires or is removed by the governor, my ability um, will not be able to, uh, won't be able to, to, to accommodate for telemedicine because of state statutes. So that's a big one as well. So when we're looking at um, telehealth in secondary school, um, right there, the mandatory report laws remain. So if you have mandatory report law, if you see a student with drug use, alcohol use, uh, uh, evidence of abuse, um, or anything else that fits into that mandatory report law in your state, um, then you have a mandatory, you are required by law to report that, that patient, right? Uh, just like you would if you were at school. So that's a big deal um, that wasn't covered in that initial one that I think is really important for our secondary school people to, to know if you're going to be doing it, you're going to have to report kids if you see something, uh, or, uh, you know, and that's just the way it is. So um, document, 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 whatever diagnosis or treatment is prescribed. Um, it's got to be documented. Because if somebody comes back and audits your records, um, they see you provided telemedical care, but you don't have any documentation, then um, you could be in trouble. Uh, ensure institutional knowledge, right? So your school needs to know you're doing it. So this whole thing hit me. Uh, we said, well, let's do some telemedical care. It's allowed now under the executive orders. And the school district said, excuse me, wait, what? You, you want to do what? No, you're not allowed to provide care. You're not allowed to do to work. So your school needs to know that you're doing it and how you're doing it and who you're doing it with and, and that kind of stuff. Um, it needs to be FERPA and HIPAA compliant. And I don't care if the, if the executive orders um, kind of waive that, which they do right now. The, the FERPA and HIPAA are waived with, with the uh, COVID executive orders. But you need to do take every step you can to ensure that you're being FERPA and HIPAA compliant. Because the one thing you don't want to do uh, is cause harm to your patient. The next thing you don't want to do would be to breach their confidentiality and, and breach their trust. So um, again, obtaining written consent for each visit. Um, and then here's a really important one. I think is really uh, it's a big deal for for secondary school. You're, you're looking at the, a kid in their home. You would never treat an athlete or a patient alone in a room, right? It's something we never do anymore, right? Is to, to be alone in the training room with um, an athlete. Why would we be in an athlete's bedroom alone on a phone or a telemedical call? So try to avoid having the athlete in their bedroom and try to avoid having um, the athlete alone. Make sure there's somebody there either with you or with the patient um, to make sure that nothing happens and that you can't be accused of doing something that, uh, that might harm you or the patient. So just recently I had to help, I guess, teach CPR to students. And so I was on a Zoom call and I had told them, I was like, look, you don't have a mannequin, so grab a stuffed animal or grab a pillow. So most of them were in their bedroom or, you know, they were, they had a pillow on, a, on the bed doing this little video call. You know, fortunately they were just showing me the, their hands on the, on the pillow. And I, like, I would didn't see the whole room, 
but it's just something that you don't even think about. You know, a lot of times I'll go to the rooms because it's quieter and they can hear and, you know, you don't have all the, the feedback. But it's just strange that the things that we need to consider but haven't considered. Yeah, I was I was teaching one of my classes and we were doing virtual Zoom class and, and um, the, this one student, all I could see was the ceiling of the student and it had little stars on it. So I said, are you in your bedroom? And the student says, yeah. I was like, uh, and it's two o'clock in the afternoon. And I says, why are you in your bedroom? Well, I just woke up in time to get on the call. I'm like, ah, so the student was very wise to point the camera at the ceiling. Right. But at the same time, nobody wanted to see what the student was wearing because the student just woke up from being asleep all night long or all day long as the case may be. Um, and that's, it's really important that we protect the patient, we protect our students. So if we can get them out of that bedroom environment, um, then we eliminate a, a huge risk down the road for being accused of something that we then shouldn't have happened in the first place. But that's, so, that's our telemedicine doc document. I do want to talk about two other uh, things that we're trying to do with SSATC. Jennifer, you want to talk about um, those two other things we're doing? The first is an educational programming um, geared towards secondary school athletic trainers. Um, the NATA has asked us to hold off until after VNATA, so we will be developing that. It will be centered on COVID-related issues, um, and it will uh, be a webinar format, virtual again. So we're looking at maybe late July, early August, um, probably give us a little better handle on... I know everybody's somewhere different. We're we're down until at least July 24th when the mayor lifts her order that we right now can't have any kind of contact with our kids. So which is different. A lot of states are starting starting to open up. So we'll see. Um, but so we'll we're working on the content and formatting for that. It'll be the same um, format that VNATA is, which is why they asked us to wait. They wanted to get their programming done and get a handle. They had just changed vendors. So uh, we will uh, uh, wait on that. The other one is um, working on some mental and emotional health um, concerns. Just in general, we've been working with AT's care uh, to develop some uh, resources. And so those things should be coming out um, shortly. All right, so there was a, a question from Anthony Jinstead talking about shared devices like the Normatech or the Game Ready or <clears throat> those kind of things. So he uses the Firefly, which is a single patient deal. But again, those things you have to consider how they're going to be cleaned and, and managed as well. And and so like with the Normatech boots that we use after every person, we spray them down and leave them out. And so we don't usually use them back to back to back for this reason. And that was all before this. And so now I'm just wondering, like, are we going to only be able to use them on one person per day or not even because now that now that that one person is stuck in the athletic training room for 30 minutes or whatever it is, uh, you're just using the game ready or using the Normatech. And now, no, I can't see anybody else in the athletic training room. So it's just be interesting to kind of see how those things, the normal treatment tools play out. I'm very optimistic that um, I'll be able to have more than I've measured out my area in my space. I should be able to have six or eight, six, depending on what, what they're doing um, patients in my facility that I'll be able to working with um, at the same time. Yeah, I've got three tables. I'm going to take two, one of the tables out, 
spread them out a little bit more. I could have one in the hydro area. Um, I could have one on the taping area, one in the rehab area. Um, so I'm really optimistic that we'll be able to get more into our spaces if we have large enough space. But yeah, those shared devices are, are going to be huge. What about uh, stem pads, right? Stem pads, obviously we shouldn't be sharing them in the first place, but but just as they are, so many of us do. And I'm not saying right or wrong there. I'm just, just kind of pointing out we need to be thinking about those kind of things. Um, go through your facility, go through your 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 daily care plans for everybody and go, how how is this affected by, how is this affected by uh, the COVID requirements? And I'm, I'm really hopeful that, that we get out of phase one and phase two really fairly quickly. Um, what I'm really fearful of is that we get a, a case and goes through a school. Uh, we get two or three cases at the school and then it shuts everything back down again. Uh, because it, it's discovered it's because of something that we did or did not do that uh, helped spread of that uh, spread of the disease. Um, the one last thing I want to point out is um, the one of the states um, has found that there's about 40% reduction in in the, the teenage adolescent population going and getting their vaccinations. That's going to be a big deal, right? We may not shut down because of COVID in the fall, but we might shut down because of the measles. Right. So we need to be encouraging those healthy practices and getting those vaccinations. Kids and parents are scared to take their kid in the doctor to get those vaccinations. But if we're not getting those measles, mumps, rubella, MMR shots, we're not getting the other shots we need to be getting vaccinations. We could be spreading a, a whole nother bug here in the five or six months that uh, would take us down just as hard. You know, that's super interesting that I didn't think about that at all. You know, there's just so many different things is well, now everybody's staying home, so they're sick, So they're now, but they're also not going to the doctor, so they can get those other vaccines. Yeah, that's, that's interesting as well. So, Well, and along those same lines, um, how many of us get sick or we see a kind of a bug go through the school about two weeks into the school year, mm-hmm. right? Well, that's because everybody was home and not exposed to their buddies um, for two months, three months. Now they come to school. Well, we've been separated for five months or maybe six months by the time some people get back and that bug is going to go back through the school again and it, and it could hit even harder. So um, hand washing, all those kind of things are really, really important. A phased in re, a phased in plan where we bring the, the kids back in where they're exposed to other people a little bit more frequently might help us reduce that, uh, that two week bug that we normally get um, as we bring kids back together. All right. So one of the questions that I had had before this kind of it relates to this is what are some things that you would recommend for athletic trainers, Jennifer or Bart, to insert themselves into the conversations? Because the, all the conversations, all the decisions that have been made, not one person has, has asked, Jeremy, what do you think? And even we even have like a district level athletic trainer and he's not even really been like asked. So he's he's kind of inserted himself into some of those just saying, hey, this is what you need to consider. Like one of the things was to bus the intermediate kids over here for a game. It's going to take 15 buses where normally you would take two. So how are we going to handle that? So for a high school game, high school event, it's going to take, you know, 40 buses because you can have one every other uh, seat and you have to wash your hands before and after and all this other stuff. And so just getting into those conversations, how do you recommend that for an athletic trainer? Some of that groundwork should have been done before now. Um, you always should have been um, promoting yourself as the healthcare professional 
and um, a, a, we're key at risk mitigation. And that's what most of our job and the preparations that we do are all about risk mitigation, seeing what could happen, trying to reduce its occurrence, and then responding appropriately when it does. So now is the time, if you hadn't before, to reach out to those stakeholders and decision makers and make sure they understand who you are and what your capabilities are. All of us that are school-based um, or at schools, that's what they perceive us as, is the athletic sports-based personnel. You have to, now's a good time to let them understand that we're not just sports-based, that our, our medical knowledge and education is transferable to a larger picture, and that we're the first line defense that's going to see most of these student athletes as they're returning. And it may be a situation where a kid gets to school Tuesday morning at 8.30 and feels fine, but by the time we see them at 3.15, they're no longer feeling fine. We're the ones that's going to weed that out. If they weren't a student athlete, they'd go home and, you know, may not be identified as a potential risk. A lot of emails, a lot of calls to find out who the uh, people involved in the decision-making are. And what we've been doing here is emailing. Um, everybody's so overloaded with everything coming at them, our state board of education and you know, whatever, I don't really want to uh, put more on their plate, but I do want them to identify that there are people who can help with these decisions and can help inform what the problems are going to be that they haven't even, just like you said, the busing, Jeremy, they probably hadn't even thought to consider that yet. And so, um, you know, there are a lot of areas that we can identify that they don't even really know goes on because we handle them all the time. So a lot of advocacy, a lot of uh, making some noise, a lot of reaching out. And um, just like you said, your district athletic trainer has done, you know, place yourself there. It's a good time to be a little uh, pushy to get in so that we're part of the solution and not an afterthought. Again, I think that's great. If you haven't been doing it, now is a perfect opportunity. Just offer some suggestions. Hey, here's a product that I think will work for us. Here's this mister that I think would work for us because we have to clean the locker rooms after every use or we have to do this and this. So so here's just keep offering those little bits of help and then like, oh, well, maybe we should ask Jeremy what, what his thoughts are. And now's yeah. the time also for athletic trainers to be flexible. Um, things are all happening that are unique and are outside of a normal timeline. And, uh, you know, we need to, again, demonstrate our worth and our value to the system and to the process and understand, like, I normally work this calendar. Well, that calendar may look a little different in this next year. Um, if we don't start athletics up in the fall, I need to find a way to make myself valuable to my school district so that I'm still getting my paycheck and they still think there's a reason for me to get my paycheck. So if that's me helping with screening every day, if that's, you know, whatever, things are going to look a little different and, um, showing that we're flexible and team players and that we can establish ourselves as part of the solution. Don't just bring up problems and don't just bring up concerns, help with the solution. Um, so that, you know, you're not just placing more work on somebody else, but you're also helping to solve these issues. One of the things that you're talking about here is, is how can I be helpful? So here in Texas, we have a lot of student athletic trainer aid programs. So I know across the country, they, they may not even know what that is, but that's basically where I have kids that are in my sports medicine class where I'm teaching them all about my job. So I, I might have them stand there watching while I'm doing an injury eval, or I might have them filling up coolers. I might have them 
uh, taping or stretching or foam rolling or cleaning or filling out bottles, whatever it is. And so now, you know, Bart talked about the one person in the athletic training room, that kind of thing. So we got to consider those numbers as well. But what are some of the impacts that you guys think that, that I'll have, this will have? Because will I legally be able to have a student athletic trainer responsible for filling up bottles because that's putting them in close, you know, contamination zone with another athlete because that splash from that bottle may come back and get on that kid. And so what are your thoughts there? So that's a conversation we've been having here as well. Um, I usually have a large um, student aid program as well. And so again, that adds to the numbers that are there. So that may be a concern if your numbers are still limited Um, and then they're minors and you don't want to expose them to any further risk than what they need to be. But they could also be a critical, helpful, useful part of your solutions. And so that I think is gonna be a district-based, you know, it's going to be something each district has to figure out what they're comfortable with and what those parents, I always get a parental consent uh, for my student aides to be there. Probably a little more critical right now. Um, Same screening and whatever would go for them as well. Whatever you're doing for your student athletes needs to translate to your student aides. Um, But yeah, I'm not entirely sure that I'll have the same uh, numbers <laughs> available to me, if any, when we do pick up. Mark, you got any thoughts on that? You know, I think the big the big thing is to to consider legality. I think FERPA and, and HIPAA kind of come in there. So a lot of the suggestions I've been hearing is to have the students doing the screening. But um, what do you do when the student screens the student and there's a 105 temperature and they're best friends and just let me go. Just let me go. I, I got to be at practice. I got to play, you know, that kind of stuff. Or, Hey, we screened the quarterback today and the quarterback is, is positive or for COVID. We had to send him home and it spreads through the school really, really quickly because of uh, that kind of stuff. So I think it's really important to, to consider what you're asking those students to do. I think they can definitely be a constructive part of the solution. Uh, but just, you know, be considerate of, of what they're being asked to do and, and the, the requirements that are in this increased uh, attention to what's going on. Yeah, I love that. Because, I mean, they can clean like crazy. Like, they put the dip bottles on the dishwasher all the time. So that's super easy. Have them spray down the bottle, have them, you know, wipe down the walls, whatever it is. But I don't want – they should not be in that position to where they're having right. to screen. If I screen and I say, okay, Joe, Bart was clear, check them off. So that person could sit there and that could be the only person touch the computer – Right. And that, and that could be possible, but absolutely. if I'm, if I'm the one that's doing the screening, I'm putting myself as the responsible, you know, legal risk adult in that position to where I'm having the contact. And then I'm also just having a scribe. Okay. That works. But again, you got to get that checked to get that cleared, but don't put, don't put student athlete, student athletic trainer aides in that position to where they're manning the gate. They're responsible because you, you shouldn't really put student high school students in charge of high school students in that capacity. Yep, for sure. Thank you. All right. So another thing is the, you mentioned it earlier, this is a great time for, to communicate with the nurse. So there's a, there's a lot of times there's tensions between athletic trainer and the nurse and fighting for power, but this is not that time. This is the time to build that bridge because they need to know every screen we do and we need to know every screen they do because if they're screening at the front door, we're screening at the back door. We can't, like we just need to communicate. We need to have that on the same document, whatever it is. Um, so this is a great time to build that connection. I've already emailed our nurse and say, hey, what are your thoughts? What are you thinking? 
how would you handle this? And she, you know, just, just starting that conversation, say, Hey, we got work together. What can you do? I know that Google docs is a really easy way to record data. But again, one of the things to consider, you said the FERPA HIPAA compliance stuff. So if you're not a Google apps for education, uh, school district, then that stuff is not actually HIPAA FERPA compliant. So if you're Google apps for education, it works. But if you use like Microsoft teams or Microsoft, uh, whatever, then, you know, just check with your IT people, check with all that stuff and make sure if you're going to use something like that. Right. Absolutely. And I, I think important, what we're finding in my school district is, is we have one EMR for athletics and they have a different EMR for their um, students, the general student population. And our, the two EMRs don't talk. So they might be recording the screenings in their EMR and we're recording our screenings in our EMR. Um, so we need to figure out a solution so that we can communicate the, the, the positive screens. So th that's what we're working on right now in our district to, to figure out some way that we can access their positives and our positives. So Jennifer, one of the things that you mentioned was being flexible. So obviously there's been a lot of athletic trainers that have been furloughed, um, unemployed, let go, whatever it is. Or there's a lot of us that, you know, like you said, my contract ended May 30th. So like I have things that I have to do during the summer through professional development or, you know, trips that are planned, something like that. So, so what does that, what does that look like? Or, or what follow-up would you say to athletic trainers? Like I can't help because one of the conversations that I've seen was your, your company furloughed you. They let you go. You should not be working you should not be working, creating plans for them because they have let you go. So there's partially like a legal risk. Like you can't be doing work because you're now collecting unemployment and you can't be doing work for them. But then there's also like, if they want you back, they need to pay you for that time or, you know, pay you part-time or whatever it is. So thoughts on that, Jennifer? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Especially um, if you're contract-based and, um, you know, you're paid specifically for your time, not a salary for, you know, whatever, then um, definitely your employer needs to acknowledge that and realize, um, you know, that there is worth in what you're doing and they need your expertise and they need to pay you for your consultancy and your plans to get everything back up and running. Um work-life balance still maintains. If you have a wedding to go to and that wedding's going, then, you know, that's a choice you, that you need to make. You need to honor the people in your life and your uh, personal relationships and uh, balance that with your work. But um, there is talk of, say your um, athletic season is going to shift and you're going to start late. And instead of starting in August, now we're going to start in October. So that means in 2021, your school year, your athletic year may go longer than what you normally do. Well, it might, and that might be inconvenient, but you were also just off for five months or six months or seven months or shorter hours. You know, if we don't pick up full athletics in the fall, um, how much overtime am I really going to be working? It may not be much. And so there's going to be some give and take. And, um, you know, like I just try to remind people, these are unique circumstances and both the employer and the employee need to understand that there has to be some cooperation and that give and take just to address the needs of our student athletes. This isn't their fault. They didn't create this. The employer didn't create this. The employee didn't create this. And so it's just going to take a lot of cooperation to get everything worked out, a lot of communication, 
um, another reason for you to become a member of that team of that response so that things aren't placed upon you without your knowledge and input. Yeah. So that was one of the things I had was how, how can we make sure that that load is shared, that it's not just dropped on us, but Katie, Katie Cass just asked, is it responsible to have a coach taking that temperature or is that a conflict of interest as well? So if you have the, you know, the head football coach taking temperatures for all the football kids, well, now is that, I mean, what are your thoughts there? So the coach would be considered an employee and he's governed by those FERPA HIPAA laws the same way. So you, you, he would be, that's a fireable offense, right? If he, if he violates that FERPA HIPAA compl- uh, privacy confidentiality. Um, and he also has, um, I'm assuming the football coaches are male. He also has some responsibilities to, um, to provide for the health and safety. And it's probably written in his job description. So that's what we're going to do is, is at our school. And I've heard a lot of other folks that are doing the same thing as the coaches will screen the kids that come to them. The athletic trainer will screen the kids that come to them. Um, and, and then record it because, you know, you're not going to see every kid that comes in the, the training room. Not, not every kid is going to come in the training room to get screened, but you're going to screen the ones that show up there. My golf coaches meet in the parking lot by the vans to head to the, to the golf course. They're going to have to have a thermometer gun to, to screen their kids before they get in the van um, to go to the golf course. Uh, and that's just, you know, we'll pick up their forms from them. There's their screening forms from them later. Or maybe they use a Google sheet and that kind of stuff, depending on, on how we decide to set it up. So, yeah, I, I think a coach is a perfect uh, example of, of thinking outside the box that they can be held responsible as long as it's a paid coach and not a volunteer coach. They can be held responsible for, for breaking, uh, breaking the law or breaking the rules. On the Facebook Live, John Seco did mention that in the Michigan Athletic Trainer, they have a COVID manager position description that they created with Matt's, and that has, and he said thanks for helping on that, uh, on their documents, um, that it has a, a way to pivot. And so when, when, when we did all the leadership stuff, you know, that's one of the things that Jocko talks about is, you know, you got to analyze and prioritize and you got to be able to pivot, that kind of thing. And so it just seems like just fitting that John Seco would be mentioning pivoting uh, on this. And so as he's talking about leading, you know, you got to you got to be willing to, to make that shift and do different things. And, you know, normally I would start in July if I don't start if we don't have fall sports, I got to be willing to do something to, to earn my earn my keep, basically. <clears throat> so, Bart, Jennifer, do you have any other any other thoughts before I have a closing video I'm going to show? Now's a good time to you know advocate for our positions, for our uh, jobs and a good time for us to be flexible and um, yep, we will stick with that uh, keyword pivoting. So good time. So my my point is is uh, that I'd like you know we haven't thought of everything, can't have thought of everything, and so don't think that these documents that have come out from the NFHS or your state or the NHA or KSI have thought of everything, and be again be flexible and and think outside the box. And I love Jennifer's um, comment. Uh, don't always be the one with the problem, be the one with the solution. Um, because that, that's what we do for a living is provide solutions. So let's provide solutions for admin, for our schools, for athletes, and, and be a positive uh, force out there. Um, Jennifer's on social media. I'm on social media. If you have an idea and, and you think that, um, hey, have they thought about this? Um, 
the uh, the the thought I opened up with this morning about um, what do you do with an EAP plan with weather, right? And where are you going to send your kids? Um, that came yesterday from a member in Minnesota. How do I do this? How do I address that? So, um, you know, we can we can kind of help you think through things if you need some help, and, and we're more than happy to do that. So I'm going to show this video, and then we'll close it out with the actual contact information and things like that. So, What if it was me? Son of a police, criminal record free. What if it was me? 11 years married, upstanding member of the community. What if it was me? Two college degrees, two girls, five and almost three. What if it was me? 11 years with an NFL team, respected professional ATC. What if it was me? Half black, half Filipino, identify with black, which is what the world sees. Dark skin complexion makes it difficult to see me. What if it was me? What if it was me that that officer sees? Pull over to the right slowly. What if it was me? Registration and ID. You were going 53 and a 50. What if it was me? Do you have drugs? I think I smell weed. Put your hands where my eyes can see. What if it was me? I hear the holster unsnap. I see him take a step back. What if it was me? Name across the bottom of the screen. Victim of a senseless tragedy. Leaves behind a widow. 11 years married. Fatherless girls. Five and almost three. What if it was me? Mom and dad outlived me. Gone before 40. What if it was me? What if it was me? Would you march in the streets? Hashtag BLM. Painted signs for TV. What if it was me? What if it was me? Would you stay silent? Secretly condemn the violence? What if it was me? Would you sit and await the passing verdict? Move on with life without missing a tick? What if it was me? Now that you know a little about me, ask yourself, what would you do if it was me? So what I was showing was the video from David Strickland. He works with the Seattle Seahawks as an athletic trainer. So it's on Twitter and, and it's about the current climate, the the Black Lives Matter. And when I asked John, I was like, I just asked John, so go, hey, does this fit? And he said, you know, you always have to ask the question, is this the right time? Is this the right place? And I think there's not a better time or place. This is this is something that we have built together uh, as athletic trainers, the, the social the sports medicine broadcast. But the the Black Lives Matter is something that's, it's super important, but, but with me, it has taken on a new level as our foster daughter and what we hope to be forever daughter, uh, is, is black. And so please take action. Uh, but, but not just right now while it's hot, but continue to take action. We've talked about patient-based care in the past and, and those things are super important because different communities treat and see things differently. And some of the conversations I had on Twitter is, you know, a, a black woman might not feel confident going into a doctor because she's been looked down on before, or just like a Hispanic woman may have may be dismissed by all the male figures in her life. So be willing to make those uh, adjustments there uh, because it is important that we have heavy quality and not that we acknowledge our the the white privilege and the things that, that we take for granted. So if you haven't checked out that video from David, do so. And if you have been silent on this matter, then speak up one way or another, right? Speak up one. Don't don't just sit and be silent, but consider consider what you're doing. So check that out. Uh, there you go. Hey, thanks Jennifer for posting that on there. So Jennifer just posted that on there on the 
Facebook Live, and I'll probably attach it when I create this post. So, Jennifer, somebody wants to get a hold of you. What's going to be the best way to do that? Um, Jennifer.reeling at gmail.com is my email. I'm on most social media uh, with my my name, um, so no funky nicknames or uh, tag handles or anything. So um, uh, reach out anyway, anytime, anyhow. Uh, I'm looking to um, eventually create a gather platform for secondary school-based athletic trainers um, so that we have uh, one place to kind of gather and, <laughs> pun intended, I guess, um, and have conversations uh, so that I can keep a pulse on what the membership wants from the secondary school athletic trainers committee, um, whether that be deliverables that we can produce or conversations that we need to have or whatever. So be looking for that. Um, but yeah, any questions, any concerns, any whatever, then, um, you know, we want to address those. So Bart, best way to get a hold of you. Jennifer.reeling at uh, gmail.com. <laughs> uh, no, Jeremy, I want to, I do want to thank number one for your continued support of the secondary school um, outside of trainer. Obviously that's where you live and work and, and breathe, but uh, I've enjoyed being on your podcast uh, in the past and, uh, and supporting the, the secondary school outside of trainer. So um, that's my first thing. My uh, Twitter is Bart underscore Peterson. And at, uh, just search for Bart Peterson under um, on Facebook. I am not the mayor of Indianapolis, however, or a former mayor, so don't choose that, Bart Peterson. Um, and then my email is arizatc at gmail.com. Arizatc at gmail.com. All right, fantastic. So I mentioned free hydration, and uh, you know, Bart, you said it there. So like I said. Rob is working on a hands-free device and everyone's going to have their own adaptation. So, um, I love free hydration and they're amazing coolers. Again, we'll have to see what, what happens as far as practice, but if you want to check out free hydration, if you happen to be in the need of CEUs, you can check out physicaltherapy.com or MedBridge using the code DSMB. Um, I'm sorry, physicaltherapy.com is one free course or the number one and then the words free course and that'll get you one free course and get you started so check those out if you're still in the need i know there's been lots and lots of online ceus available during this time um, and also we have them on our website there's only two available currently two and a half hours of ceus but check those out and um, if there's something that you need something you want to see a course on let me know and we can work on building that out this is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash COVID-19RTP. And then real quick, um, Talia, she works there with Joseph, um, said that the video, the sound was working on, on the video. So if you're watching live, I'm sorry, I cut it off for you, but check it out. It's on there. Um, and I'll have the links to it too. So Jennifer posted those links. So again, this is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash COVID-19RTP. So for Jennifer, Jeremy, Bart, and the Sports Medicine Broadcast. That is a wrap. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.